This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. You know about six degrees of separation, right? That everybody on this planet, all, how many are we at now? High seven billion? I haven't looked recently. But everybody on this planet is six or fewer connections away from each other. So you could pick somebody who lives in Siberia. And if you found the right path, you, through six connections or fewer, would be right to them. Well, I know them, and they're related to that person, and that person's related to that one, and they came from there, and oh, there we go. There's the connection to that person you've never met in Siberia. And now that we have a lot of different paths that you can take, a lot of different companies and organizations have jumped on genealogy, you can look back in your own family tree. And it's remarkable to see some of the connections that exist. We are about to talk about a connection that will leave you scratching your head. And it all comes down to tomorrow being the anniversary, May 23rd, of a pretty big event near here in Canadian criminal history. If you've heard the name Norman Red Ryan, so Red Ryan, he was shot and killed in Sarnia in a bank robbery in 1936. Okay, and that particular event sure has its connections, but we're about to find out about a connection that will leave you either blinking, rubbing your eyes, or maybe just shaking your head entirely. Please welcome Paul Culleton, who is a documentarian, to London Live. Paul, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm just fine. It's a wonderful day. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, we're eager to hear what you have to tell us about the connection to a bank robbery, and I'm getting that date right, May 23rd, 1936, right? That's correct, yes. Okay, so on that day, there was a bank robbery taking place in Sarnia. What do we know about that particular robbery? Okay, just to give you a little bit of history, the robbery that was being committed was a holdup of a liquor store by Norman Red Ryan and his gang. And basically, they were they felt that they had to do one more holdup, and then they were going to head west out to British Columbia. So this was their last job. Um, what happened is it, it was near the end of the day, and they figured that was the best time to do it. Anyways, they got in the bank, and everything seemed to be going well. And all of a sudden, something happened that they weren't able to account for, and that is somebody came in off the street and rang the alarm. So the alarm is sent out. And then the Sarnia police force begins to react, and they basically assault the building with Red Ryan and his gang inside. So, do you want me to keep going on that, or with that part? Okay, of the story, yeah. If, if there's, if if there, maybe just to the part where we talk about a police constable named Jack Lewis, so that we have That's that. Right. So, anyways, the the Sarnia police go in the bank, and Jack Lewis is the first one in. Now, Jack Lewis is, is a local constable. He's very well-known. He's 33 years, years old. He has a beautiful wife and two children. Lewis is the first police constable in the bank, and he runs directly into Red Ryan. Red Ryan instinctively fires four rounds into his chest, 
um, one which hit a book, another one which hit a bullet, uh, a, a button, and then two which eventually proved to be mortal wounds. And so you have these two individuals that come together at this point, and that takes you to the story, I guess, if you want to go there, of the six degrees of separation that you were talking about. Well, that's exactly where we want to go. So this is May 23rd, 1936. So tomorrow presents an anniversary of a tragic event where we have a well-respected police constable who is shot and killed in a bank robbery, Jack Lewis, in Sarnia by a well-known Canadian criminal, Red Ryan. So, Paul, take us up to present day and those jumps of separation that land right on your doorstep. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so here's the background that goes with my connection with Red Ryan. I grew up knowing Red Ryan was related to me. I didn't know exactly how it was related to me, but it was always a story that was part of family lore. And as it turns out, Red Ryan, his his grandmother was a Culliton. So that's his connection to my family. His his grandmother was a sister of my great-grandfather. So we grew up with that knowing that all the time. And, you know, when you, you talk about it, it's novel. I mean, you know, he was a individual that they were fascinated with historically. So knowing this, I'm sitting there in, um, I have a, had a connection with the Elgin Middlesex Chiefs minor major hockey team. And uh, we have a young player that was staying us, with us this year, and he was a billet. So I'm always at the hockey practices. And I'm sitting down um, with an a gentleman by the name of uh, Steve Hake, who is a OPP police sergeant here in the London area. And we're talking, and uh, Steve is from Sarnia. So, you know, you get going, and you say, oh, yeah, Sarnia, by any chance, to, did you ever hear about the Red Ryan bank robber story? And Steve says, yeah, you know, I, I, I think there's some kind of connection there with one of my relatives that was a police officer. So, okay, well, that'd be really interesting. So Steve decides to call his mother. And um, anyways, we're sitting there, and he calls his mom, and he gets off the phone. He says, yeah, he says, uh, he says, yeah, actually, we did have a connection to the holdup. Jack Lewis, who was a police constable that was killed, was my mother's great-uncle and his great-great-uncle. So here I am. you got two individuals coming down from different sides of one of the great crime stories in history, and Steve puts the phone down, and all of a sudden there's that pregnant pause you know where you go oh okay here i am my relative shot and killed the relative man that is sitting right next to me and and you know what the first words that came out of my mouth at that point um typical canadian faction i went i'm really sorry about that (laughs) isn't that wild where you two are sitting in a hockey rink in kamoka presumably yes yes And beautiful rink, sitting in in a hockey rink in Kamoka, watching a hockey practice, and you get talking about that, and you realize those six degrees of separation take you back to May 23rd, 1936. Yes. It, it It was one of those spooky moments when you think, what are the odds of all these stars lining up and these two people meeting on a cold January night at a hockey practice just talking and all of a sudden you find out that okay his relative and my relative were on opposite sides of one of the great crime stories of canadian history it was it's just one of those things it's just like you go wow maybe i should have bought a lottery ticket at that point or something like that i don't know (laughs) if it was good or bad (laughs) 
That is remarkable. We're talking right now with Paul Culleton about a connection that goes all the way back into the 30s, back to a blood relative, Paul, of yours, who ends up being a notorious Canadian criminal and a police officer who was fatally wounded at a bank robbery that was being carried out by that notorious criminal, Red Ryan, and you wind up talking with one of that police officer's descendants. You guys were side-by-side at that point. I'm just glad we got along really well. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it was one of those moments. I mean, we we both kind of laughed about it, but you know what? It it was also a moment of realization for me because, yes, it's it's a novelty, I guess, you could say to have this famous you know, bank robber that's related to you that, you know, there's been two movies made about him, three books written, and, you know, and they called him the Jesse James of, of Canadian, you know, criminal history. But when you get down to it, really what you're looking at is a story where this man murdered, you know, a first responder. I mean, we talk about the first responders, you know, being on the front lines with the pandemic and everything like that, and police officers go out every day and put their lives on the line. And this was a classic example of this. The bottom line is Red Ryan killed a very good man that had a great future in front of him and, you know, took away the father of a family of of a very good family. So I think in the end, that's something that should never be lost is that it was really about the taking of life. I'm glad you added that. Paul, thank you so much for taking us through the six degrees of separation for enlightening us on some local history connections this this has been fascinating tomorrow is the anniversary please stay safe and thanks for the time paul all right we'll talk again take care definitely that is paul culleton documentarian talking about red ryan and a tragic event as we said this is a a bank robbery kind of gone wrong in which a police constable, a very well-respected one, what police constable is not, but a very well-respected police constable in Sarnia, losing his life because of a confrontation in this robbery, and then two people happened to be at a hockey practice many, many, many years later. We're almost at 100 years later. And they wind up talking about it, and it turns out each one is a descendant of one of the men involved. One on one side... But we do have some significant challenges because of the COVID-19 pandemic for farmers. And they were actually raised this past week in the Legislative Assembly by NDP Deputy Leader John Vantoff. And we are lucky enough to have Mr. Vantoff with us right now. Uh, Mr. Vantoff, thanks so much for taking some time for us. Uh, thanks for uh, inviting me on. Let's look at your concerns when it comes to farming. What would be, if you were making a to-do list of concerns, what would be number one? Um, number one is to make sure that uh, farmers have the security to make the decisions that are going to ensure that we will have uh, food in grocery stores, the selection at a price that we, uh, that we can afford. And there are steps we can take and haven't taken yet. So, in other words, when we're looking at farmers, and we've heard stories that some are saying, and a lot of these go back a few weeks, but they were contemplating some of them saying, you know what, maybe I just won't plant if I can't guarantee workers, if I can't guarantee some of the other things, maybe maybe I just won't even do it this year. So, is it along those lines? Well, maybe it's 
maybe not that they won't plant, but they might plant different things. So things that were so if you if there are crops that are really expensive to plant and you're not sure that you are actually going to have a, a market for those crops at the end because lots of farmers have totally lost markets because of COVID, you might plant something else that is not as risky and is not as as profitable maybe, but there's not as much risk. But when it comes to the end of the year, if you plant if you've always planted tomatoes and peppers. And because this year you don't have the, the labor or you don't have, and so you're going to plant something else. Well, when it comes to us buying those tomatoes and peppers, they might not be there. And because COVID-19 isn't just happening in one part of the world, it's happening all over the world. So normally if you have a bad year in one place, uh, if you can't get peppers from Ontario, you import them from Mexico, let's say. Well, this year everybody's having the same issue. So it's really important that we ensure that our domestic food supply is going to be there come next winter. The decisions that are being made now are going to impact what we are going to eat, not next week, but next winter and, and in subsequent years after that. Miskaming Cochran, MPP, and one of the deputy leaders of the NDP, John Van Hoff, joining, joining us right now on London Live. Now, it would be one thing to say, okay, that is an issue. Now we've got to find the time to bring everybody together, figure out what to do, create legislation, pass legislation. But is there anything that might happen to be there that maybe we could make uh, use of without having to go through that? Exactly, exactly. So the federal government's come up with some programs, and everybody agrees that they're not enough. But Ontario, we have a, a unique situation. We have something called the Business Risk Management Program. It was created uh, years ago when we went through another farm crisis, and all the farm commodities got together and the government got together. They agreed in this program to manage risk. At that point, the provincial government agreed to pay 40%. Subsequent to that, the provincial liberal government decide to cap it so we no longer they no longer paid 40 percent that's one of the reasons why the liberals lost so much support in rural ontario the last election both the the conservatives and the ndp we both committed to to take that cap off and actually go back to paying 40 percent and this program works but it's underfunded it's like prorated insurance right now it works it's there all the government needs to do is rip off that cap. And for the life of me, I don't understand what they're waiting for. There has never been a more crucial time in agriculture that farmers, everyone needs security, but farmers right now, they're not asking for a dole out. They're asking for uh, to put that program back in place so they actually can insure against market risk. And for the life of me, and I think I speak for a lot of farmers across the province, for the life of them, they can't figure out what the provincial government's doing. When the problem, when the Conservatives got elected, a lot of people across rural Ontario breathed a sigh of relief. Oh, finally, a government that understands agriculture. And you know what? I, I, it's my job to oppose them, but I just can't for the life of me figure out what they're doing. John Vanhoff, one of the deputy leaders of the provincial NDP and MPP for Temiskaming Cochrane. Could it be a, a dollars component that could go into it as you talk about yeah. insurance against things? Sure. Is that a concern? Well, it, it, it could be a dollars component, but we're talking about food security here. Like, look, look at the issue that we're going through now with 
personal protective equipment because we let it go and now we're having to source it from outside the country. We have the capacity to grow our own food. We export food. But the people who do that need the security when markets go crazy and like they like they've gone now. You know, this is like being, you know, penny penny uh what there's 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 that saying, you know, you're you're saving a few cents, but it's gonna cost you huge down the road. We have a program that works, it's proven to work. And I think what really what the government's what the provincial government's doing is they're hoping that the feds are gonna pay the freight. The, the province likes to have, like the premier likes to have great press conferences with catchy phrases, but deep down he's hoping to, you know, and probably the Minister of Agriculture deep down hoping that the feds are going to pay the freight. And I'm not sure that, you know, or Ontario farmers aren't sure that they can just sit back and wait for the federal government. We have a program that works. It's worked for years. It's proven to work. You don't have to invent something new. You don't have to recreate the wheel. In the last election, they promised to fund it. Let's get on board and let's just fund it. Mr. Vantoff, one last thing, and that is you raised this on Wednesday. What kind of a reaction have you had since then? Um, uh, from farm organizations and from farmers, uh, they, they have been very thankful that somebody, and we've been pushing this for a while, but that someone's actually raising the point of, you know, where have the Conservatives been on this one? Farmers traditionally... You know, I'm not going to hide the fact that the farmers traditionally vote conservative. And, and they were, were expecting that the government would at least listen to common sense. And, and they, they want to know what's going on. Well, we really appreciate you raising the issue because, again, you've got farmers who are used to going about their day-to-day business. They do not ask for gold stars. They do the work. They work yeah. hard. They provide us with something we need. And every once in a while, we got to lean over and say, hey, everything okay over there? And it doesn't look like everything's okay over there. So thank yeah. you so much for raising yeah. it, and I hope this results in something in the near future that helps yeah. all of them. Mr. Van Hoff, thanks for your time. Please stay safe. Hey, thank you. And as a full, I was a full-time farmer for 32 years. I know what these guys do, and uh, uh, it's an honor to represent them. Well, thank you for that as well. Appreciate it. Okay, talk to you later. That is Deputy Leader John Vantoff with the NDP and talking about the risk management program that he says just needs, it's there, just make use of it, and the idea that, well, maybe the provincial government is waiting for the federal government so that that kind of an expenditure does not come from the province and we knew going into this ontario didn't have much money left if any i mean we were the opposite of having money is it possible to open a wallet look inside and see a negative return if that if that's the case that's what ontario's wallet looked like so maybe there's that to it but no this is food security for all of us so if we're going to have a number one on the to-do list shouldn't it be farming shouldn't it be food my late father-in-law, that was something he read more than anybody I've ever met in my entire life. And that was one topic that he would not let go. What are we going to do to feed ourselves as we move forward? Because there were a lot of signs that we weren't doing anything. We weren't doing enough. We were just leaving it up to farmers. And it wasn't going to work. So you need to support those who need to be supported you need to give them at least the security to say okay yeah i'm willing to plant what i've always planted to keep the supply of that around instead of leaning more toward a safer crop makes sense doesn't it and i mean it 
I mean, farmers do not ask for anything from us. You know, we could have the farming awards, but I don't know how you'd split hairs on that one. You you could do that. You should do that. You know, I always like to group a number of people into who should make the millions, whether it's police officers and firefighters and teachers and doctors and nurses and other health professionals and farmers. That That's your mix right there, where if you're to list off the things that we absolutely can't live without, yeah, they come into that category. And we talked last hour. If you missed it, we will make it available on our podcast, which you can find at 980cfpl.ca or on the Curious Cast Network. You can subscribe to it. This is London Live. Uh, we talked last hour with NDP Deputy Leader Provincially John Van Hoff, and he talked about a fund that is just waiting that could help farmers that has not been used, and he suggested that maybe the Ontario government is waiting for the federal government in order to find some kind of support, not for farmers. Farmers aren't putting their hands out saying, here, we need something. What they're doing is they are simply saying, you know, in some cases, instead of growing a riskier crop, we're going to switch to this because there is no insurance should that crop that we normally grow not turn out, not have the workforce, not have the marketplace, those sorts of things. So the idea is not give a handout. The idea is provide some insurance. What's wrong with that? Why wouldn't we do that? Maybe what we need to do is get a, a real perspective on farming in 2020. Maybe a, a personal account of farming in 2020. We have the opportunity to do that because we're joined right now by area farmer Michael Groot. Michael, how are you? Michael, can you hear us all right? Yep, yep, I got you there. Excellent, perfect. Well, it's great to have you on London Live just to provide a little bit of perspective into farming in 2020. You are someone who has certain parts of your farm industry that kind of go year-round. You have other crops that you plant. So when you look right now at what you would call basic challenges that you would face, what would you point to? Well, main one of the main challenges is really uh, the processing industry. Um, like I, I do grow, I grow corn, soybeans, I grow some wheat, um, uh, cattle, and sheep, and a few chickens. But uh, a lot of it is the processing. Like we're we are. I recently read an article um, that eighty five percent of the pro- beef processing in Canada is done in uh, three plants across Canada. That sounds so surprising. Think of how much beef we consume. Three, three plants. Yeah, and especially, like, when you look at this COVID-19 situation, right? Like, that's taking a pretty big risk. If, like, um, one of the processors out west did end up having to shut down, and that really hurt hurt the chain. But um, could you imagine if if they all had to shut down? Like, where would we be at then, right? But, um, yeah. but it's just getting down to processing maybe at the local level. I know it's been talked about, and uh, uh, but just just livening up that market. Like there's so many ever since the BSC 
situation back in the early 2000s, I think, is when they started kind of uh, making it harder for the smaller processor to uh, keep its doors open and compete on a larger scale with the uh, the bigger processors. Tightened up regulations and just added a lot more red tape. Um, there has been talk of reducing some of that red tape uh, coming from the government, but as of yet, I don't think there's there's much to be seen from that yet. But as far as I'm concerned, that is one of the uh, main concerns that we have here on the farm level, not just in beef, not just in meat, but adding more processing in all the areas of grains and oil seeds and bringing things back home, like just being able to supply a local demand if we can. I know economically um, maybe it's not as as strong as these more efficient bigger plants can provide us with, like a cheaper product, but what does security have to say about that is where my, yeah, what, my mind is. What would you pay for security, right? Yeah, and that's not usually worked into the price. People usually don't think about that. And uh, that is something that hopefully through this pandemic people start to think about more is uh, what are these hidden costs of the product, the cheap product we're buying that can be shipped in from wherever in the world that they can do it real darn cheap. But what is the true cost of not being able to rely on them and not having a market available to you locally. And if the groceries, if, if this could have been worse, had all of a sudden the grocery stores had to shut down or even cut cut a lot of their uh, staff off, like, what would happen? Like, That's an excellent yeah. question, followed by another excellent question. We're talking with Michael Groot, area farmer. As we look at, at the business of farming right now on a local level, so maybe we can shed some light and maybe we might be surprised by how difficult it is right now to get through red tape locally. Is there anything you can point to that would help us to understand maybe how long it would take or, or what sorts of things go into being able to take something that you've grown and kind of distribute it locally? There are, um, there are definitely some long uh, wait lists at uh, the local local butchers the chicken chicken processing in particular uh seems to be extra hit by this or over the last uh, 10 15 years like they're in our to, where we send our chickens to get processed like you like there's no way you're getting if you wanted to uh, get a batch of chickens right now you're not going to get them processed until probably by next spring like it's it's a heck of a long wait list and um I don't know. The chicken processing seems to be the the main problem uh, in the process sector. Like the beef, beef is in the past. It's been a six, seven month wait before you can uh, bring an animal in to get processed. Um, but the chicken, the chicken seems to be consistently uh, these longer wait times, and it's uh, it's a little bit frustrating. Like if you have some orders all of a sudden that people like we we are in the small batch. We don't have quota, so we keep small batches, but if we were wanting to add on to that, if we sold out and we're wanting to add on, like good luck getting a spot. Like it's just not going to happen. And like I could, I could process it myself on the farm here. It would be darn safe. Nobody would get sick, but uh, I'm not legally allowed to, to do that either. Um, I can't sell, sell that off farm. So. And that's something we don't even realize. Okay, as a, a final thing, Michael, if we were to offer up something that would be a big help to farmers, wave a magic wand or something like that, is there anything you would point to, even one thing that we could do to make things better? Jeez, that's a... Where's, would let it me be get the red tape? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's... Uh, it, yeah, it, it, 
it is the red tape. Um, but like, I'm not a processor, so I can't speak specifically to that. Um, but it just seems like they just can't compete to the, to be paying for these upgrades they're required to do. Whereas the big plants can just, that's just a penny and a drop in the bucket, right? Sure. We'll do that. No big deal. But they, these smaller processors, like they have to be, they have to have the same equipment that the big guys do. And, uh, yeah, just cutting that red tape, maybe making it a little more scalable to certain individuals, not just like a blanket, not these blanket rules that just cover the whole industry, right? It, it, like, I don't want to get into the COVID-19, uh, all that stuff going on right now, but, like, comparing Toronto to us, say, out here in the, the country, like, there's not very many cases around here, and we're everything is being shut down just the same as it would be in the city like trails are being shut down you can't even go for a walk like it like just i don't know if that comes from federally or but just to have a blanket like that just doesn't make a lot of sense and i think that relates to the processing industry as well right but uh, i'm all for being safe like don't get me wrong they're they're trying to keep the consumers in mind they want the consumers to be safe to not get sick and um but even just scaling that differently i think would would be helpful in my opinion anyways yeah michael we really appreciate the insight because there is no better place to go than someone who is dealing with it on a day-to-day basis be safe and have a great weekend and good luck with the growing season thank you mike it was good talking to you great talking with you that's michael groot area farmer so those are some of the things we don't know about we don't consider when it comes to farming thanks to michael for giving us that perspective If you want to enjoy a nice beverage on a patio this weekend, it has to be your patio in Ontario. Remember that. They are not open yet. However, there do we call them plans? There are plans perhaps coming. There are discussions being had on how this could play out. We're looking at different cities and how they have done it, different provinces and how they have done it. And there is a conversation certainly that perhaps expanded patios could be a big help for the restaurant industry, which right now has been limited to takeout. Joining us right now is one of the greatest curlers the world has ever seen, and he is also someone who has been a big part of the beer store for a long time, Glenn Howard. Glenn, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, pleasure, Mike. Uh, Long time no talk to (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's been a couple of weeks, but it's great to have you back because especially when we're able to talk things like beer and patios, I can't think of two better topics to discuss. When you look at how that's fitting together, how have the discussions gone or, or what sorts of things are you hearing about perhaps bigger patios and what that could mean? Well, you know, uh, Mike, uh, when the beer store heard of this, uh, you know, sort of this effort or idea to, to expand patios, it, it just makes so much sense to us. You know, it, if, you, if you expand a patio, uh, it would better allow for social distancing, uh, safer protocols for outdoor service, uh, a bigger footprint, obviously, for the, uh, the bars and restaurants. And you gotta, you got to think that the bars and restaurants are hurting right now. And to be able to maybe make that footprint a little bit bigger, have more uh, customers come in, that hopefully it'll uh, get them uh, back on the, on the track they have to get on. 
That's just it. Okay. And when we think about expanding patios, we've got cities right now, they're looking at big baffles, or I'm not even sure what they would call them, big plastic things that could even come out past sidewalks. Is that the kind of thing that, that you've been hearing about? Yeah, exactly, Mike. I, again, it's brilliant. I, I, you know, people are thinking outside the box, and it's something that, that we have to do. And, uh, you know, I think of the, the, the bar, little bars and restaurants, the sort of thing, even in my hometown here, they, you know, they're small. They, they need, you know, 70, 80% patronage to, to keep it a go. And if we can allow them to, uh, you know, open up the patio, open up a parking lot, or open up a, a little, like I said earlier, a little bit of a bigger footprint, then that'll allow for more customers. And again, obviously, abiding by, uh, the strict social distancing protocols. And, and if this can happen, it, it makes so much sense. And hopefully uh, it'll, it'll come to fruition. Beer Store spokesperson Glenn Howard joining us. And Glenn, as a final note, we've been talking a lot today about how COVID-19 has affected farmers and some of the challenges they have had. We don't even begin to realize what it's done to our restaurant industry, do we? We, we don't. And uh, again, you know, I know on a personal note, I'm trying to uh, we're trying to get out and uh, do a lot of uh, takeout for our local restaurants uh, just to keep them going. And they're doing the best they can. I, I feel so badly for them. And it's, it's in such a horrible time. But they're, 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 they're brilliant. These people are, are very innovative. They're coming up with ideas. And, and again, back to the one we're just talking about, uh, expanding patios and driveways or parking lots, whatever the case may be, it, it seems like such a great idea. And, you know, the beer, beer store believes that uh, the bottom line, bigger is better. Well, let's see how the discussions continue. And we really appreciate you ending the show today with talk of beer and patios. I can't think of two better things going into a weekend. Glenn, keep safe. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, buddy. You as well. Appreciate the time. That's Glenn Howard. One of the best curlers in the world and a guy who knows beer and patios. He is a beer store spokesperson and has been involved with the beer store for a number of years now. And, yeah, that's that's something that no matter where you live, what part of the city you live in, perhaps we're going to see big expansions or allowable patios and what that means for street configuration don't worry those will those discussions will be there but the beer store is getting behind this initiative because restaurants have been hit and this may be the way that you fit into the new normal no guarantees we've still got to make sure everybody is socially distanced you can't get together with a bunch of people you can't go wandering around from table to table like you might before you know, the people who, who love that part of the social aspect, that's not going to be there in the same way. But the new normal may allow for more outdoor patios and more space on those patios. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.